Alright, this is going to be the first of two classes about Rosh Hashanah. Um, and we're going to be focusing on the Hasidists of Rosh Hashanah. Now, the, the main theme of Rosh Hashanah, if one were to look in the prayers, um, there's multiple layers to the prayers. There's what was originally established um, by the sages as the mandatory prayers. And then there were things that were added over the generations. So um, in the high holidays with Shani Yom Kippur, there's a lot of stuff that was added over the generations. Some of those are based on customs of the communities. Some of them are pretty universal custom. But if you strip all that away, you gotta go to the core elements. What are the added things that are unique to the prayers of Rosh Hashanah? There's one central theme. And that is the idea of Hashem's sovereignty, Hashem being a king. Even the notion of Rosh Hashanah being a day of judgment, although it's discussed in the Talmud, is not really the central focus of the prayers. And Hasidus, following in that vein, spends most of its time in understanding what Rosh Hashanah is about, centering on this idea of Hashem being king and the idea of crowning Hashem king. And so that's what we're going to be having two classes on, this idea of crowning Hashem king. Um, now, I'm going to start off with an observation, which I think is important, because if we have this clear, it'll make everything go smoother. We live in a, in a society where we have done our best as a society over the past few hundred years to get rid of the idea of kings. Now, obviously, there's still the King of England, there's still the Queen of England, right? There's still places where there are kings. But really, that, that is, a, is, a, is an institution that anchors and society is centered around, and, and people have an intuitive sense of what that means. It's something that um, the Western world has tried to mitigate and uproot and get rid of. And this makes it very difficult to talk about crowning Hashem King, because it's very hard to talk about something we don't have an intuitive sense of it. You know, the way it generally works is that we have all these analogies describing our relationship with Hashem. Father, husband, king, etc., whatever they are. And there's a lot of work in abstracting from the analogy what we really mean when we talk about Hashem. So in what sense is Hashem the father? Okay, so you have to have some kind of sense of what we mean by father. You have to then idealize that, like abstract it from the, the complications of being in the you know, human world. And then understand what would that mean in, the, in a theological context. And that's hard enough to do as it is. But then you take something that we don't even have like a very intuitive sense of, um, it becomes very, very difficult. The, the Tsar of Russia, all the Tsars of Russia, were not known to be particularly fond of the Jews. One could kind of say the history of the Jews in Russia is that the Russians expanded into area where Jews lived and then spent the rest of the history of the, of the, of the reign trying to figure out how to get rid of the Jews. That's basically the history of the Jews in Tsarist Russia. Um, but when the last Tsar um, was removed from power and eventually assassinated, one of the great Hasidic mentors, um, when he heard the news, he cried. People asked him why he was crying because you know, he wasn't exactly a, a great man, a good man. And he says, because now that there's no Tsar, and it's not that this particular man died, but the institution of the Tsar of the king is gone, how will people ever have any sense of when God is king? Now, obviously, he didn't mean that God is like, 
Nicola II, who was a, not exactly a paragon of virtue or a capable leader, but there's some kind of a, of a, of a, of a sense of what that, this idea is, and sometimes it's manifest more clearly, sometimes manifest less clearly, but we don't have any sense of it all. It's very hard. Um, and that's one of the reasons, not the only reason why I'm dedicating two classes to Rosh Hashanah, because we actually have spent a lot of time talking about women as a king in general before we talk about what it means Hashem is a king, what it means crowning him as king. The other thing I want to point out, it's not simply something that we're, we're unfamiliar with. It's actually something that many of us have deep abhorrence to. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start out with, with a, a, two things that I think many of us on a very gut level take as, as core values. One is the equality of human beings. That we're not all equally smart or equally strong, right? equally wealthy. Right? But kind of at a core level that... Our, our, our fundamental place in society, our right to participate in society, on a core level, we're all equals. So that's one thing. And the idea of consent, that at the end of the day, I'm only bound to what I agree to. Okay, so if I, if I you know, decide to take a job and then I wanna quit, I can quit whenever I want because you can't compel me to do something that I don't agree to. Right? Now, I'm mentioning these as two distinct ideas. One can argue whether these are distinct ideas or not because both, the idea of having a king really counters both of these. What was the, can you repeat the first one? That, the first one is that we're all equal, fundamentally. Again, we're not equally powerful, equally capable, or equal this, but like our basic standing in society. Yeah, so I'm gonna give you an, I'm gonna give you an example. Um, when you go to court, the court does not look to see are you a noble or not before deciding where you go to court and whether you can sue that person or not be sued by that person, right? But it used to. Yeah, do you know? Just, I'm gonna spend a lot of historical examples because I, I really feel that if I don't do this, what ends up happening is that it becomes cliche and it ends up getting reduced to things which are very important ideas in relationship with God, but they're not kingship. Um, in the French Revolution, they had this thing called the guillotine. It's rather unpleasant. Um, do you know why they had the guillotine? Because as in many European um, feudal societies, nobles were beheaded, commoners were hanged. But if we're all equal... Everyone would have one thing. Yeah, but the chief execution of Paris said there aren't enough swords because when you execute someone by beheading them, it dulls the sword. And you can only do it so many times before the axe or sword is not usable anymore. Just, you can't, it doesn't work. So you need a device to do this more effectively. Right? So um, th- 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 this idea that really there are different rules for different people, not because of you're a good person or not good person, a smart person, but because like somehow your standing is different. There's a hierarchy. Okay? Um, one, of the, one of the things that many European writers wrote about when they toured the United States in the early, you know, the, the early um, 19th, 19th century is the sense that there really didn't exist that idea in the United States. You had rich people, you had poor people. There was this sense that there's not really different classes and there's a real hierarchy. Um, there's obviously kinds of hierarchies. So, and I think because we do on some level feel that it's important that we're all seen as equals. And we do feel like my consent really is an important thing in, in defining obligations and duties and social relationships. The idea of having a, a king, of having a monarch, goes against all of that. So it's both something that we're somewhat unfamiliar with. Um, and on top of that, it's something that we may have deep emotional um, 
difficulty coming to terms with. I am going to say one other thing before going forward and talking kingship. Um, the fifth Chabad Rebbe, one time describing it in a discourse, he spoke about what it means to be a servant of God. And he gave the analogy of a slave. And he describes the degree of subjugation the slave has to the master. Now, the way, um, the, way the Hasidic discourses were presented in, in, by the fifth Chabad Rebbe was he would say the discourse Friday night, the Chassidim would listen to it. This course usually lasted about an hour and 15 minutes. Um, and then the, the Chassidim were expected to memorize it from hearing it once. Um, not word for word, but the flow of ideas. So you have to be very focused. And then, and then the, 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 there would be a, the evening prayers, and then a short Shabbos meal, and then the, the Chassidim would, would review that and discuss the discourse. And the next morning... Um, they would enter into the, the Rebbe Shab's private study and they would review the discourse from their oral recollection. There was a person who was in charge of that. If he forgot something, there were some people who would assist him. And the, if they had questions, he would, the, the Rebbe would explain. And sometimes the Rebbe would, in, would interject clarifying comments. And on this particular discourse, when he describes, when they were reviewing in front of the Fifth Chabad Rebbe, the, the degree of subjugation, he interjected a comment and he said, in the analogy, this is, this, is, this, is a, this is savage. Because to feel that beneath another human being means you've lost any sense of your own humanity. It's only when we abstract this to God that there's any virtue in this type of idea. So on some level, our sense that as human beings we're fundamentally equal, it's not wrong. But the social institution of monarchy is very useful as of something to build on in relationship with God. So I'm going to be talking about monarchy and talking about how Torah understands monarchy and, 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 and how Hasidus understands monarchy and I'll be drawing on historical examples and I will be presenting it as if it's trying to, you know, what it is and, and trying to present it, it's, it somewhat in a positive light and ignoring all the negativity and, and, and um, both historically and that goes against kind of our own moral compass because at the end of the day, this is not saying that, you know, we should find, you know, some you know, patrilineal descent of a warlord from 500 years ago and make him an absolute ruler of us. That's not what the point is. But there's something about this kind of a social arrangement that helps us have a deep insight as to what we mean when we say God is king. And that's ultimately what Rosh Hashanah is about. Okay? Now. So I want to first start with a distinction that Hasidus makes. I'm going to give you the Hebrew words, um, but I'll also give you English translations. Um, the first one is kayach, which I'm going to translate as power. Can you it on the yes, oh, is that one who... I, I have to keep going there, it's not going to work. So. I don't to. Okay. First one is koach, which I'm going to translate as power. The second one is memshala, which I'm going to translate as authority. Okay. And the last one... I'm going to trans uh, is called Malchus, which I'm going to translate as kingship or sovereignty, if you want. So there is Koach, which is power, Memshala, which is authority, and Malchus, which is kingship. And I want to first separate these three things so that we don't, because very often when we have when we do talk about Malchus kingship. In real life, it's mixed with memshala authority and koach power, 
And when things are mixed together, it's hard to isolate the element we want to understand. Okay. Koach is, is an, a thing that is shared by all animals. Power. This means every animal has um, preferences, has desires, and wants to fulfill those desires. But there are other animals or other natural things that prevent. So for instance, just a simple example, there's a tiger, the tiger wants to uh, um, eat some prey animal, but there's another tiger who also wants to eat the prey animal. Right? So what happens? Which one? They fight. And the one who has the most power wins. So this is all things that you'll find in a king? A king will have all of them, but we want to talk about the kingship element. Okay. So power is the ability to force others to do what you want or to not do what you don't want. But the element is you're forcing. And koach, power, is always a means to an end. The tiger doesn't really care about the other tiger. It cares about the, about the prey animal. The, the, I, don't know what, I don't know what the prey animals live in the jungles where the tigers live. But whatever it is, right? Okay. Um, you know, if it's territory, if it's a mate, if it's whatever it is. Words, you want something, right? And this exists, you know, you know, even this exists even if you're talking about, um, you know, well, I mean, say very unsophisticated life forms, right? Like insects and snails and things like this, right? They all have drives. They want to pursue those drives. Um, and they have power to get the other things out of the way or to influence other things to cooperate with them. Okay? Mamshallah, authority is a different thing. It's, if, it's fundamentally social. It's fundamentally political. And this means that you are in charge. Okay? And this is something that for argument's sake we're going to say is uniquely human. In other words, that we have, not, we have this notion that one of the things that we desire in life is to be in charge, to have authority. Now, we all experience this with regard to ourselves. Okay? Um, assuming that we're, we're, we're relatively normal adults, meaning... <laughs> Um, do you like the fact that you decided last night that you were going to get up at a certain time and you didn't get up at that time? Or that you made a plan and you didn't keep it? Or you were going to do something and got distracted? Do, do you like that sense that you you're, intend your life to work one way and then in practice doesn't end up being that way? Just regarding your own behavior, right? No. right? We have a sense that, and it feels like really good just to know like I decided to do something and I carried it out. Like I have authority over myself. That makes sense? But now, what I mean here by authority is when that's extended over people. Some people have that desire that it shouldn't end with their behavior. It should include others. And that's not a means to an end. Like a teacher needs to have some authority in order to teach, but a real teacher doesn't want to have to have that. A real teacher won't want the students to be so devoted to what they're teaching that they don't really need to have authority, right? There are some people that they want to, it does something for them that when they say something, other people listen. And here's the important thing. Authority is weakened the more you rely on your power. I'll give you a simple example. Um, a parent. If a parent has to use bribes or threats to get the child to do what they're supposed to do or not do what they're not supposed to do, both that shows a lack of parental authority and also what does it do? It undermines the parental authority that they do have. Now, how exactly do you then Managed children is an interesting thing. Okay. Um, there was something called Bloody Sunday in in um, in uh, Tsarist Russia. 
This is where the situation was very bad in 1905, and they decided to petition the Tsar. They thought the government was evil, but the Tsar is their, their beloved king and uh, has authority over everybody, and surely if the king would know what's going on, he would, he would do something. And so they petitioned, they went to the Winter Palace, which is a palace outside of the capital, and uh, the, the Tsar hears that there's a mob approaching, and he knows his French Revolution history. He gets very nervous. He puts soldiers outside the gates. The soldiers get nervous, and what ends up happening? It's called Bloody Sunday for a reason. That's right. And what happened as a result of that? The Tsar lost his authority. Broadly speaking, from that point on, the average person in, in, in Russia didn't think the Tsar was genuinely... That guy, he's not really entitled to tell me what to do. Maybe he has the guns, and maybe he has the soldiers. Right? Um, it didn't end up overthrowing the Tsar then, but really, when they did overthrow the Tsar, it really was kind of the the finishing what happened at that point. There was, a, there was a kind of disillusionment that happened throughout the empire that he doesn't really have authority. And how do we see he doesn't have authority? Just one second. Is because he feels threatened and he has to use power to get us to back off. Yeah. So what would be the main difference between authority and power? Would just be so, so power is a means to an end. It's never, seen, it's, never, it's never seen as an end of itself, whereas authority is very often by people, people sometimes have a desire to have authority. Again, we all have that for ourselves, and then we have authority over others. And authority works off a kind of sense of social legitimacy. If you have to use power to back up your authority, that shows the authority is not so strong. And, and at a certain point, there's no authority and there's just power, and that, that's what we call a, revol- a real revolution. Does this make sense? Okay. But an authority is not kingship. For instance, every government that exists on earth that is seen as legitimate by the people, broadly speaking, has memshal, has authority. In fact, in modern Hebrew, how do you refer to the government? As the memshalah. That's actually the word. Yeah. So just to clarify, when we say someone's power hungry, based on these definitions, they're really like authority hungry. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Meaning like I, it's not the way we use the terms in day-to-day. Right. So like some people, they really just want to have a lot of money so they can do whatever they want. But the only way to get money is to be the boss. The only way to – right? So, so they, it ends up. And then some people, like they just want to be able that what they say everybody does. That's also power. Right. But I, because I need two different words okay. and, in, and the words that are actually used in Hasidus, and there's a reason why. So I'm going to use the, word, the, the, the Hebrew words and give you more or less the closest translation. This, and the reason I'm doing this because this creates confusion is because it, we'll often say a person is power hungry and the, the, what this wants to differentiate is that memshallah, this authority, it's, it's something different. It, it, you have a kind of power over people, but it's, it, it's, there's something about your ability to tell people what they can and can't do that's seen as legitimate that makes people obey rather than Force, bribe, um, or anything like that, and 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 that's something that's very deeply rooted. And again, every human being has a need for authority, at least over themselves. Again, unless something has gone very wrong in their development as, into adulthood. Okay. This makes sense. Okay. Now, what we have in modern societies is we have memshala authority with no malchus, no kingship. So I'm going to use the United States as an example because it's it's a where this idea starts to really develop, but you know, this is true very much 
even in places where, where you, you still have monarchies legally, I'm talking the Western world, the ideal still has become very much weakened. Um, who has the authority in the United States? And the one who has the authority is the government. Now, the government is a very complex mess of stuff, which is why in the United States very little gets done, but they're the ones with the authority. Why do they have the authority? They were voted in, right? So the legitimacy of that authority comes because they were, they were elected. Now, what's the idea of electing? The idea of electing is, really, society should work the way I want it to work and the way you want it to work. But that's a technical problem, right? If we all just have society work as we all individually want, what do we have? Chaos, right? So in order to make this more functional, right, we are going to appoint certain people and give them the authority, right, Conditional on our approval, right? And every so often we, we get rid of them, right? Or we, or we keep them, right? This is the theory, right? And so this notion of sovereignty really doesn't lie in the government. The sovereignty lies with the people. And the idea is that the government works for the people, right? So what we're doing is we're taking the authority that's rightfully ours and giving it to someone else. Now you have things people call politicians. They love having authority. So like, I want some authority. And they try and get us to give them their, our, the authority. Okay. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Okay. What it's is? Not, it wouldn't be considered as like they're taking power because they're doing it in the ways that we would. Right. Allow them to right. 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 In other words, over us, they're right. Alone. Right. So the the idea is the, the the idea right the idea is that the people are sovereign, the government has the authority, and when people don't obey the legitimate authority, the government has power to, like, you know, arrest people and do things. But that really, you know, if, if you have to, like, throw people in jail to get them to keep the law, right, you don't have a functional government anymore. Mm-hmm. Right? But what does it mean to have a king? So there was a man named Charles. He was a king. Um, and the English people decided they didn't want him to be king anymore. <laughs> so they, and they put him on trial because they felt that he was not meeting his duties as the the... the the king of the English people. Um, does anyone know what Charles' defense was? He's being put on trial. They ended up executing him for, 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 for not beating his duties and his obligations to the people properly. But does anyone know what, what his defense was? Basically, um, he said, you cannot put me on trial. I am the law. If I decide something, that's the law. And if I change my mind, now the law is different. Right? The law is the law because I say it's the law because I am the law. And you still have remnants of this. For instance, the king of England, also named Charles, does not have a passport. Do you know why? Anyone here from uh, the UK? Oh, isn't it because... I'm not from the UK, but isn't it because they're like... They're born off... No. No. He gives away a passport. If you ever read your passport, a passport is that the the that 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 government is asking the other governments to let you cross the border. That's what it is. You can read it, right? So if you have a U.S. passport, the Secretary of State exercising their governmental authority because they were appointed and approved. Yeah, okay. Um, who who's who's asking the other countries to let you in if you have a U.K. passport? And Charles, right? Charles is the one, they're being issued in his name, right? Uh, the passport is, he is asking other countries to let you in. That's what a passport, like, he doesn't need to issue himself, a, that makes no sense to issue himself a passport. Okay? Um, 
So did he have one until he became president? I think so. I think so. Okay. I, again, I don't want to use the, the, you know, these modern Western things that still have some monarchy left as, as, as real, the real examples. And what this means is this idea, this idea of, of monarchy, or the idea of monarchy, is that somebody else's will, somebody else's desire just simply counts more than yours. It just does. And how much more does it count than yours? There's, their will decides the structure of society. And what is expected of you? This is, a, this is an open-ended question. What is expected of the people? No. Before obedience. In other words, it translates into obedience, but there's something first. And it's actually, there's a, f- there's a few words that we don't use. I'm going to leave aside the word service right now. Give me, think of another word. What is expected of the people? Acceptance. I'm going to give you a hint. It's a word you probably don't use regularly because we don't have monarchies anymore. Okay, like for instance, we got rid of the word subject and replacing it with citizen, right? That was actually a thing when Thomas Jefferson um, originally, I think he wrote the Declaration, I think he originally wrote subject and crossed it out and like, like worked very hard to erase it. Submitting, right? But these are still common words. I'm gonna give you a word. The reason why I want to use the word that's not used anymore is to just show you how like archaic this is. Fealty. When was the last time you used the word fealty? Fealty is the feeling a subject has to their lord, to their liege. It's like you don't even think of this sort of thing. This is sense is that you're supposed to have a sense that your life, your life is not being controlled by that person. Your life, your measure of success in life is measured by what? The degree to which you prioritize their, your, your liege, your lord, your king, and his will. How do you know you've lived a good life? That's right. And if your choice is to, if, you are send, if you're given a choice and you really have that true sense of fealty and your choice is to disobey the king and save your life or, save your, or, 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 or not disobey the king and lose your life, what would you do if you have like absolute fealty? You would lose your life. Okay. That's the simple answer. The deeper answer is you don't have, if you would, if you would to betray the king's, betray the king's um, will, it's not you would be saving your life because you wouldn't have a life. In other words, you would, you would be destroying your soul to save your body and nobody would consciously do that. In other words, that literally the measure of whether or not I have been true to myself is the degree to which someone else's will has been the thing that I cherish most dear. Now, you see, like, this is not a thing we, we do in society anymore, right? We don't have this. Okay? And if we do see things that remind us of it, it can often make us very uncomfortable. Okay? So it's predicated in the like there really isn't equality. The king's mere whim is law, and the measure of my life is the degree to which I submit and embrace that, but to the point that I actually feel like that's, that's, the, that's the barometer my conscience uses to tell me I'm living the good life or the wrong life. By the way, if you, ever, if you like reading literature or watching movies, you'll see this theme shows up in like, you know, when you have um, 
genres of these types of things, of kings and nobles. The sense of like the person feels like the king has done them wrong and the king is not, you know, treating them unfairly and yet they can't just bring themselves to sell the king out because that would be selling their soul. And, and there's this notion that there's this, and the way it's put in Torah is that the king is the heart of the people. If the choice was to get rid of your heart and save your arm, or get rid of your arm and save your heart, what would you pick? Your heart, right? Okay, now, what if you were the arm? What would you pick? Think about it for your answer. Think about it. What would you pick? You still pick the heart. Because, like, you don't gain anything by saving your, the arm at the expense of the heart. The arm also dies, right? But imagine, like, having that sense towards somebody else who has no obligation to do things that you like. Who's under no rules, right? It's not even a constitutional market. Like, literally no rules. Whatever they want. In Judaism, the one limitation is the king has to keep the Torah. That's it. But outside of that, the Torah doesn't clearly tell the king what they can and can't do in a particular issue. That there's a mitzvah in the Torah to appoint a king. What is the punishment for disobeying the king in the Torah? Death. Does it matter what the king commands? So if the king says stay home and you decide that you want to go on vacation, it, 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 so you have, we have to think, unpack this. Like, what is this? What is, this? what is the nature of this relationship? Okay. It's, again, not simply someone has power over somebody else. It's not even authority. It's something much, much deeper, something that kind of goes to the core of people's identity. Yeah? What if the king commands you to do something you're not allowed to do? In Torah? So in Torah, the idea is that the king is really an embodiment of God's kingship, So in prince, which, which leads to two interesting consequences. Number one, the king has no authority to command you to do something that's against God's will, which is less restrictive than you would think, actually. Um, but the other thing is the king is also not allowed to tell you to, to, to forego his own honor. There's certain things, the king, we're gonna talk a little about this soon, but the king has to have certain things that preserve the, their station, their honor, okay? The king is not allowed to tell somebody, you know what, you don't have to treat me like the king in Jewish law. Um, a Jewish, because you know, if, if someone is a great scholar or a great sage or, or a great wise person or a great holy person or, or your parents, the Torah affords them certain dignity that we have to respect. But if they're allowed to tell you, look, I don't, I don't want you to treat me with that extra dignity. Simple example, um, according to Torah law, when your parents come into the room, you have to stand up twice a day, not more than twice a day, because we only stand up for God twice a day. So morning prayers and afternoon prayers. So you're not supposed to show more respect to God. But twice a day, now what if the parent says, I don't want you to, don't, don't stand up. Don't, don't come to just don't stand up. You don't have to. What if the king tells you you don't have to stand up and the king, you still have to. Because it's not the king's, it's not, it, the king is simply the vessel. It's not his honor to, honor to forego, okay? Um, so it's, 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 you know, it, 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 it's quite a powerful thing. In fact, this is why when we talk about the end of days and, 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 and the, the ultimate state of affairs where, where God is, is most revealed, that's known as the Messianic era, and Messiah is just English for Mashiach, and Mashiach means anointed. And how do you, a Jewish law, appoint? And by this, is actually, from then it's extended to many, many, many cultures, including in England, they, they anointed Charles. Um, you anoint a king, use oil. Pour oil on his head. Um, so what is Mashiach? Mashiach is a king. Mashiach is like an actual legal halachic king. 
which is a topic for another time. But the point I'm bringing up is that, that it's not that he is supposed to be like, it's not his sovereignty. He is just the vessel to represent God's sovereignty. But we have to go back and understand what, what is this kind of relationship? So what I want is I want to talk about relationships generally. And I want to talk about um, two kinds of relationships broadly first. Um, one kind of relationship is where the relationship is about dictating behavior. Okay? For instance, if you have a lawyer, okay, most countries have rules about proper conduct for a lawyer, right? Um, client confidentiality, um, ethical obligations, right? If you have financial advice, right? A doctor, right? So we have rules for behavior. And so what that's saying is because you're interacting, we don't want, don't want there to be conflict, we don't want there to be chaos, we want that um, things should run smoothly, and so different relationships have codes of conduct. Sometimes they're set into law, sometimes they're not set into law. Like for instance, we right now have a relationship, I'm teacher, you're students, right? Um, and we haven't like set out in any legal sense a code of conduct, right? And we probably even haven't spelled out in just in a, in a mutual agreement. But there's implicitly certain things. For instance, you're all being quiet and I'm talking, right? And you, as a general, don't talk unless they indicate I want you to talk. That's not because my will is any more important than your will, but in the context of teaching, that's what's effective and that's what's expected. Make sense? Okay. But at the end of the day, when you have these types of relationships, there's a certain um, superficiality because who we are as people is not really part of it. Okay? And I'll use a word to describe this and we'll call this professionalism. Who I am and who you are deep down inside doesn't matter. What matters is am I doing the job of conveying the knowledge effectively? And are you doing the job of learning it effectively? Now, that doesn't mean it has to be emotionalist. For instance, a professional therapist, right? It obviously has to establish an emotional connection with the person, okay? But the point is at the end of the day, the behavior, the interaction needs to have some kind of a structure and that's what defines the relationship. And by the way, in many societies, um, even relationships that we would consider not professional are professional. So classically, this is a little bit of a preempting to, to some things that we'll talk maybe in questions and answers. Classically speaking, um, marriage was a professional relationship. That there were social needs to be met and marriage is a way of structuring them in a way that was effective. And the expectation that you have a deep personal relationship with your spouse was like a plus. Now that's not the way we conceive of it now, for better or for worse, but it's just an important thing that's different. Um, Parenting, also, many societies was, you know, again, I'm not arguing that it should be that or shouldn't be that way, okay? But then there's other kinds of relationships where the, the, they're not defined by the code of conduct, although there is a code of conduct, what's appropriate or inappropriate. So what are they defined by? So there's, what, I'm going to use a very vague word, it's the translation word that's used in Chassidus, they're defined by connection, or in Hebrew, hiskashus, but we're just going to define by connection. We're connected. And that's very vague. What does it mean that two people are connected? How do you measure the degree of connection between two people? They just have an obligation to each other? No. No. Obligations can flow from connection. Intimacy. So that is what we're actually going to try and show is not necessarily true. 
maybe it's like what you do for the other that has nothing to do with your own needs, like setting aside your time for someone else. So I, that may be, I'm going to go something much more basic, which is the degree to which you can go live your life and leave the other person out of it. For instance, um, if you have a very good friend and they're having a very hard time, can you just like shut that out and go live your life? And the fact that they're having a hard time, it's like a non-issue. Because I mean, there's like, look, there's eight billion people or something in this world. Many of them are not having a good, good, easy time of it. Does that really prevent you from having a good day? No. Okay, so this person, you're friends with them, but they're having a hard time. Can you just like tune that out and go on and live your life? And the answer is sometimes you can and sometimes you can't. And the harder it is to do, that shows a greater degree of connection. Wait a minute. This is good. Sorry. I just want to make sure I don't miss it. So living your life while not being connected. Well, not be, right. In other words, I, what going on internally with me doesn't have to entail them. Now, that doesn't mean we're interacting. So a good way of illustrating this is letters. We don't do letters anymore because we can all communicate instantly, right? But back in the day, Right? If you were far away from someone and you had a relationship with them, you had to write a letter. So how do you write a letter? It's like a lost art. By the way, I recommend writing letters. My father writes letters from time to time. It's a good thing to do. Okay? How do you write a letter? Dear someone. I'm not, but not the physical part. The, what do you have to do to like... You have to think about what you want to say. You have to think about what you want to say. And, and so you have to like kind of revisit your life and put them in your life even though they weren't there. Right? Yeah. So, you know, the, the, the young man went off to war and he's been gone for, 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 for months, right? And he's writing to his wife, right? Or the wife is writing to her husband, right? And it's to like go through the day-to-day life of what I experienced, what I felt, and put them back in there. And then from that place, you share things. Now, if, if you feel very connected, it's very easy to do that. If you don't feel very connected, it's very hard to do that, right? This sense that my internal life is somewhat independent of you, that's a lack of connection. The more it's inseparable from the person, again, not the interactions, not that they're even there, okay? And you can be very connected to someone that you've never met or someone that you'll never see again, God forbid, right? So, I mean, the, the idea that first instance, a person may have never known a parent and is always wondering would their parent approve of them? Would their parent, would their parent agree with their life choices, right? They feel very connected but they necessarily have never met the person. It's a sense that I am not an island. At the deeper parts of my being, I'm not an island. Okay? And the thing is, because it's not based on the behavior and the conduct, the opposite, the behavior and the conduct is based on that, right? Why do I treat certain people certain ways? Is it because there's rules for I should treat them? Or because this person is part of my life and that places certain demands on how I should interact with them. Okay? So a connection is something deeper than emotions. Emo- it's, it, it's, what, it's, what, it's what motivates the emotions. So if you feel connected to someone and they disapprove of you, you feel sad. If you feel connected to someone and, and you know that things are working out well for them, you feel happy. So you said it's like we're not an island, but is it more that the other person is part of us or is that that the deeper part of us needs them? This is where you get into there's different kinds of connection. 
There's many different kinds of connection. And by the way, not all connection is, 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 is symmetrical. An asymmetrical connection is um, a mother and a newborn infant. The mother is connected to the infant, but the infant is not really connected to the mother. Now, there's like a deep essential bond. I'm not, I'm not talking about that. Because the infant is only experiencing what? Raw bodily sensation. But as the infant's experience becomes richer and more socially oriented, then the infant does start to develop a bond, a sense of connection with the mother. Okay. Does this make sense? Okay. Now, so, Connection is a sense that I cannot live my life and leave my, my sense of that other person I'm connected to out of it. And then, right. Um, and by the way, this requires, this is why maturity is so important to have connections. Because let's say, for instance, I'm teaching, right? I have a wife and I have eight children. Stuff happens. I have to come every day and teach you, right? Not every day. I teach you, I teach you three times a week. Okay? Now, sometimes things happen with my wife or my children and it affects me very deeply because we're connected. But that's not conducive to what I need to do right now, right? So I need to have the maturity to be able to like handle that emotion and go do something else because it makes you, it, it means that there's not just one pole around which your emotions, you know, circle. You know, if you feel connected to someone and, and um, life is not working out well for them, you carry around a lot of pain. And that's not, that pain is not purposeful, okay? Um, no, that's why I said the maturity. Because you, 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 if you don't have maturity, then connections are dangerous. Because you do become, right. I cannot live my life functionally if you're having a bad day. Right? And, and so like, the way Hashem made it is that generally speaking, the depth of connection and normal human development is supposed to grow to the degree of maturity correlate to the degree of maturity. It doesn't always line up perfectly, but we're supposed to be able that we have the maturity to handle that depth of connection. So I'm going to give you an example. Um, the key element in a Hasidic Rebbe, before their righteousness, before their spirituality, before their knowledge, all these things, is the degree of connection they feel to other Jews. Now, what does that mean if you want to become a Hasidic Rebbe? You need to have a lot of maturity. Because it means that you, right? so there's somebody and they're having a very hard time. Their marriage is falling apart. And there's another person who's, who, another person who's just had a new baby and is having wonderful things happening for them, right? And you feel connected to both. And you feel both and you carry that both within you. And then you still have to function, interact. Like, it requires a lot of maturity. It's very, it can be very overwhelming. Okay? There's, there's, a, there's this capacity for connection and we're not all equal in it. Okay, and, and that's an important thing to be aware of. One of the, this is me just, you know, not really directed the class, directed the class, but it's a piece of advice. You have to be aware that because we have a limited degree of ability, capacity for connection, and we have, at whatever stage in life, a limited amount of maturity to handle that, if we waste it on people who shouldn't be so important to us, we won't have it for the people who are supposed to be important to us. And so it's important for a person to be very honest of who are the priorities in my life, where do with that connection go first and foremost, second, third? Because sometimes we feel more connected to people that objectively we shouldn't be. 
Not that they're bad. In other words, in other words, that our emotions are much more wrapped up maybe around what anonymous strangers think about us uh, or our colleagues at work and how they relate to us and what they think of us. And that's the thing that we carry with us um, and what's going on emotionally with our family members, our closest friends, we're most of oblivious to. Okay. But, this, but connection is not the interaction. It's, it's what creates the expectations of what's appropriate and inappropriate interaction. Whereas the other kind of relationship, the professional is, this is a practical thing. Like, what's the right way to teach? What's the right way to, like, you know, have a, a traffic, you know, cop make sure that the, you know, traffic stop is done in a, prof- in a manner that's good for society? You know, the proper direction between the cashier and the customer at the grocery store, whatever it is. But there's no, there's no deep connection, there's no bond. Now, remember what he said about a king? That a king... Like from the people, there's a sense of, supposedly a sense of feel to the sense that, that my whole life is measured by the degree to which I, I, I live in accordance with the king's will, the king's desire. So what does that tell us? Is, is, is being a subject of a king a professional relationship or this deeper kind, one where there's connection? It's the second kind. But here's the thing. A king. Torah, though, right? No, no. This is this is actually this is not just even in Torah. This again, if you, you go if you like go look at like the you know even in the, the, the literature and movies around <laughs> oh, these yeah. times, you see this dynamic play out. It's okay. Um, the you know the, 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 the you know anyone know the story of King Arthur? Mm-hmm. Right. So oh, and he has his knights, right? <laughs> and so his knights, and so. The knight has this conflict because there's the conflict between the woman he loves and his sense of fealty to the king. And like, okay, it's a big mess. That's, that sense that you you really care, it really matters to you. But here's the thing with a king. A king is the opposite of intimate. It's anti-intimate. What does that mean? So what's intimacy? When you're close. And so king is a very strong connection that's distant. And, and I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this kind of like abstractly and then I'll explain. Most of the close connect, most of the connections we're familiar with, the closer we are, the stronger the connection. The further we are, the weaker the connection. A king is the reverse. The king-subject relationship is... The further we are, the stronger connection. The closer we are, the weaker the connection. Is that how it's supposed to be? Yes, it's supposed to be. That's what this kind of that that's if it that that's what we mean by the kind of it's it's a a different kind of a relationship. Now, which means just one second. Which means if you want to be a king, right, you would need to practice the art of distance. If you want to be a king, you need to practice the art of distance. There was a great king of France named Louis XIV. I'll ask you a question in a second. And um, Louis XIV, who was known as the Sun King, um, he, he, he wrote a manual or a guidebook to being a king. And one of the things he writes at the beginning, is paraphrasing, is more than any of our endeavors, we must devote ourselves, we as the royal we, to being king. And what he means is that you have to, be, have to manage the art of distance. So I'm going to give you practical examples of lachal, and then I'll ask you a question. In Jewish law for a king, a king has to have a haircut every day. The king is not allowed to be seen getting the haircut by anybody other than the person cutting his hair. The king is never allowed to be seen in a state of undress or casual dress. 
if the king is mourning, right? So normally in Jewish, in, in, in the Jewish practice and the lachas, when you're mourning, you sit on the ground or in a low chair and other people sit on regular chairs and they comfort you. When the king is in a state of mourning, he sits on the throne and everyone else sits on a low chair. Okay? The, the, there's a royal way to speak, which does vary from culture to culture, but it has a, a common thread, which is the royal way to speak, is there's a dispassionate tone to it. You cannot tell what is really going on inside. If the king says, we are displeased, you don't know, like mildly displeased or like furious, right? If the king says, do something, you don't know is like this really important or just like, uh, you know, the first thought that came to the mind, right? There's this notion, and, and you see this play out, by the way, if you think about like a judge in a courtroom, right? The more they get emotional, the more we feel there's something off. That's kind of a remnant of this idea that there's a, there it's more legitimacy due to distance. But the th- idea is that the king, the king has to present a, a sense that there is an infinite gap between us. And what's going on inside me, you will never know. Not, and not because I'm hiding it from you. Like sometimes we don't want to share things. But because it's beyond you. Because you're not on my level. I'm going to illustrate this one thing and then I'll let you ask the question. This notion of you're not on my level. So there used to be this thing in, back in societies where they had like this nobility is that if you affronted someone's honor, right, there was like a duel or... Okay, so here's the thing. So I'm a nobleman. I come in to dinner and, 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 and this other nobleman sitting in my seat and I say, that's my seat. And he says, is it really? And then he gets up and like, well, I, I challenge you to duel and then we have to go and, you know, like you know, gauge in violence against each other at dawn or something, right? <laughs> something crazy like that, right? But that very same nobleman walks down the street, right? And some commoner, like, starts cursing at him. What does he do? Nothing. Why? Because it's not the same. Yeah, something like, your, what does what you say have any bearing on my life? Right? You, know, you lost the sense of your station when you get offended by them. This like an but the king is like that in the most absolute sense that even the nobles on some level or everybody, the nobles, the commoners are all equal in front of the king. Hence, the king can make the noble the commoner and take, the way, and take, the, take away the nobles' titles from them, right? That's the idea. So the idea is that there's, there's nothing... Yes, you're a person, I'm a person. But what's going on inside me is beyond you. And you'll never be able to appreciate it. In essence... And the way I conduct myself is to make that clear. And what does that instill in the people a sense of? That the king is what? Not on their level. Well, if the king is not on their level, then his desires are not on their level. His insights are not on their level. His agenda is not on their level. And therefore, the real way to live life is not in tune with my inner sense, but in tune with his inner sense. But I have no sense of what he wants other than unless he tells me. And that creates this deep loyalty, this deep fealty. And it's and like every relationship, it, it has to be cultivated. And like every relationship, there's two sides, right? And if one side does their job, it makes it easier for the other side. If the subjects really relate to the king like that, it makes it easier for the king to be a king. If the king really presents himself as a king, it makes it easier for the subjects to really feel that. 
And so I'm going to again summarize the way you asked the question. The degree of closeness undermines the depth of connection. It's a very, it's an, it's the, the more unavailable the king is, not because he's hiding from me, but because giving a sense that, that in essence I can't, I can't live on his level and he could never live on my level, that gives me a sense. I should forego living my little peasant life and live, my life should be governed by whatever, whatever motivates the king, which I'll only know based on his dictates. Someone over here had a question who's waiting very patiently. Um, I did, but I think you've answered it all. Okay. Closeness undermines the depth of connection. Now, this is not true if you talk about almost basically every other kind of relationship. Every other kind of relationship, the more that I can see things from your point of view, you can see things from my point of view, the more we understand each other, the more we have empathetic experiences, the closer, the stronger the bond. Okay? Just one, one thing. Okay. What this leads to is an interesting observation that Chassidus makes about a king is that a king is. Um, one of the hallmarks of a king is their compassion and total lack of empathy. Let me say that again. Their compassion and total lack of empathy. What does empathy mean? What does it mean I empathize with you? To connect with the other person and what they've gone through. Yeah. Feel. The king cannot empathize with you because the king can't live on that level. That level is too... too too mundane, too ordinary, as, 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 the, as the Zohar puts it. It's not the way of the king to live in ordinary affairs. The king does not empathize with what it is like to have to make a living, to be worried about you know, whether or not um, somebody is, is, is go, likes you or doesn't like you. The king is the king's not, again, we're abstracting it, right? But that's, and if you, want to, if you want to try and be a king, you have to at least try and inhabit that space and present that space. Not everyone can do that, by the way, effectively. Some, some people were born into kingship were really bad at it. Um, hence monarchy's end. <laughs> um, Has society become more empathetic? Yes. Have you noticed society is very much about do you understand me and I understand you? Can we see where each other's are coming from, right? Um, but, so, but the king is compassion. Now, here's the thing. Is it real? What? Is it real compassion? Yes. It's actually more real. Okay, so here's the thing. When you have compassion for somebody that's rooted in empathy, that compassion is a double-edged sword, okay? Because it makes you see them and their issues and what bothers them very, very vividly at the expense of others, okay? I'm gonna illustrate this with just a simple little uh, observation. You ever watch a nature documentary? Okay, now, here's the thing. There's a, there's a tiger, uh, not tiger, I'll use a lion. A lion and a wildebeest, right? Who's the villain? Lion. It depends. Depends on the tone of the narrator and the music. <laughs> That's the art of making the documentary. Because the thing is, documentaries have to have narrative. Narrative, you have to empathize with the protagonist. So it doesn't have to be great. That's why you can, it doesn't have to be good. You can have an answer here, right? So we empathize with the lion or the lioness, right? And now that causes us to see the wildebeest as mere food, right? Take the same footage, <laughs> narrate it differently, put the music slightly differently, right? And now, right, we empathize with the wildebeest trying to survive and the lion is the... Compassion that comes to empathy causes you to villainize others and it's proportional. 
the even within relationships. Yeah, yeah. Compassion that comes from empathy causes you to villainize others. So there's a famous line in a Fiddler on the Roof where the uh, someone asked the rabbi the question and he says, "Yeah, you're right." And then someone asked the rabbi the other question is, "You're right. You're right. Exactly. Right. You're both right." Okay, so it's a joke, but there's this notion that when there's a certain, you're above it all, you can see the legitimacy of people's needs and see the legitimacy of their concerns without it undermining seeing their other, the opposite side as well. And, be, and the king is supposed to, again, the idea of the king is that it really has the maturity to deal with that, to handle that, that the king, you know, can feel compassion for everybody without having to get into their shoes, without having to villainize the other side. So is empathy a bad thing? The way Hasidus puts it is empathy is a dangerous thing. And, and, and the reason why I'm saying it's a dangerous thing is that many things in life are very, very good when they're used correctly and very dangerous when they're, and very bad when they're used incorrectly. And, there's, and not many of us have access to this other kind of compassion. So our choices are to be compassionate through empathy or to not be compassionate at all. And between those two choices, which one should we pick? But do we have to be aware that it carries a danger and wield it judiciously? Yeah. Okay. But it, th- this is a totally different kind of compassion. And this also means that the, king, that the, the, the king's compassion therefore isn't limited to like being able to, to, to relate to things. It leads to this very interesting thing, the notion of petition. Right? So in Saudi Arabia, there's still a monarchy, like a real monarchy. Um, and so there's a lot of things that are still... One of the three practices they have in Saudi Arabia is they have governors. Now, the idea of a governor was when you have a king, kingdom and the king is not God, so he can't be everywhere at once, you need someone who represents the king. And so he, so to speak, just like in the Jewish law, the king represents, the, the king represents God's sovereignty. Like this person is effectively embodying the personage of the king. So in Saudi Arabia, they have governors. And I believe it's once a week, the governor has an audience day. What an audience day is... It means you line up, and if you have a complaint about anything, literally anything, you can take it to the governor, and he will listen, and he'll decide if he wants to deal with it. And part of the art, by the way, of, being, of having this exaltedness is that you have to actually take a certain number of the petty issues that are seemingly beneath you seriously and deal with them. You know why? Because if you only handle the really big issues, what, is that, what sense does that give the people? Mm-hmm. That you're... Right. Well, it gives the sense that, that you're not really above it all. Like you're, you're like, think about it like, like in a democracy, right? You don't go to the prime minister and say like, my neighbor like, like took my bike. Like, that's not my concern, right? So he's defined by his role and his function, right? But the fact that, my, you know, we're, should we go to war? And my, my neighbor took my bike are at least in principle of equal concern that's something that, 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 you know, to the degree to which it's really true or not, it depends, but is, is this idea that they're on a different plane, they're on a different level, they're living transcendent over everybody else. And by the way, this underlies a notion that we have of prayer. In Judaism, we believe very strongly that your ability to, your ability, your, the legitimacy of your prayer does not depend on how holy or righteous you are. Why? Because the Shem's above it all. That's right. In other words, you're, in other words, if prayer was like, like studying, so some people are 
capable of studying from great teachers. And some people, like, it's a waste of the great teacher's time, right? You might as well just, you know, go to, like, you know, the community college and, like, you know, learn, like, just the basics. You're not going to get past it anyway, right? But the notion, but then, that, but, the, but then you're kind of putting everyone on the same scale. And so this notion that, like, I'm not worthy and I'm not fitting, in fact, it says, it says in our, in our, in our tradition that the righteous, they understand this. And when they approach God in prayer, they don't ask God to look at them as righteous. They, they, there's this, they, they beseech him for his mercy. Because in a sense, it works both ways. Everybody's legitimate and no one has any inherent claim. No one, no, no one is entitled and every claim is worth hearing. And, and that, it's a whole different kind of compassion. And it's, it's called in Kabbalah, it's called, it's called uh, the idea of, the, in, our, in, in, the, in the prayers you'll see this phrase, but this is what Kabbalah calls rachamim rabim, or abundant mercy. When you see in the prayers this idea of Hashem's abundant mercy, it means not a mercy that I, compassion, I empathize with you. It's that I, no one has standing in front of me, but that also equally means that, that, that also means that I can see every concern, no matter how small it is, as, as legitimate. And it's also one because of the other. Right. They, they, go, they go together, right. You cannot separate these. If you, can, if you have one without the other, then, then something is fake about the whole thing. And it's rare. This is not something that many people have in, in, in a real way. In fact, when you see this in somebody, even if they don't notice themselves, the tendency is people to start to relate to them as a kind of a king. People start deferring to their opinion. Like even, what? Rabbi. Rabbis not always. Some rabbis have this. No, rabbis, a lot of good, a lot of rabbis have to do with their training and their knowledge. This is often, though, if you want to know, like, how Hasidic rebbes became rebbes. Because it's not enough, like, it was, people just had the sense that this person is very connected. I don't know what's going on. They care about everything, and yet nothing, like, and so they start to feel like they start anchoring their life around that, okay? Um, this is why, you know, in, 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 in pre-modern societies, sometimes people would kind of appoint someone or accept someone as a king not just because they were stronger but they had this sense that like they they bring something transcendent and unify us in a way that we, we can't exactly explain but we all feel and it's that 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 makes them feel very devoted Would that you gives say that's why monarchy existed for so long probably and we actually do a lot of things to suppress this instinct by the way it's really interesting yeah um, and then on the 13 attributes um, it's Hashem, Hashem, omnipresent, merciful. It's mercy is at the beginning of the attributes. Right, right. Well, those are all considered attributes of His mercy. Mm. Right. And there's a question why mercy is one of the attributes of mercy, but I'm not going to go oh, to that right now. There's also a dispute how you because the verse has more than than 13 words. Right. So where do you start counting? What gets grouped together? What's yeah? There's right. also a dispute. Okay. okay. What's the idea of um, being a time where Hashem's closer? I will. Rake will tell you to refer to the class I gave on Ella, oh, which is on SoundCloud. Sorry. Okay. Um, so now, here's the thing. Relationships in general, and specifically the non-professional kind, the kinds of deep connection, have one basic dependency. You have to really want them. I cannot feel connected to someone if I do not really want to feel connected to them. I'm gonna make this very, very blunt, yeah? Mm-hmm. God willing, you'll all be parents. Right. And some of you maybe already are parents, I'm parents. Here's the rule. It is true that on an objective level, you're a parent once your child is born. But on an experiential level, you have to want to be the parent. 
You have to want to have that parental relationship. And if you don't, if you don't have a positive attitude, you don't, you don't wholeheartedly see yourself in that connection, you won't be able to do it. You can do the kind of technical professional stuff of making sure the child has food and like helping them with a bank account, but it won't be there. The same is true with friendship and the same is true with being a king and a subject. If there isn't genuine investment of self into it, it doesn't exist. Okay? Now, we have 10 minutes left, so I'm gonna now start shifting from the idea of kingship just broadly and talk about Hashem being king. The basic idea of like this, and we're gonna, again, we'll start now and we continue tomorrow. Jewish days start at sunset. When the sun sets, Erev Rosh Hashanah, as Rosh Hashanah is coming in and the sun sets, God no longer desires to be king. At all, on any level. Even a little bit. Even subconsciously, if you can use that word regarding God. He has a zero interest in it. And what Hasidus explains is that we on Rosh Hashanah are trying to get Hashem to want to be king again. And I'm going to make it very simple for right now and then we'll develop it. The only thing that will get him to want to be king if we want to be his subjects. And he sees into our hearts and he knows if, we, if we're just telling him we want to be, we want to be, or we really want. And basically on a very, very simple level, God can say to us, and he does say at the beginning of Rosh Hashanah, why should I believe that you want to be my subjects? I mean, I was fully invested in being your king the past year. It's hard to say you were fully invested in being my subject. And, um, you know, I don't see any reason to, 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 to desire this anymore. If it's not going to be a two-sided thing, why should, I, you know, why should I be the one that invests myself and then I'll have myself disappointed? And we're somehow supposed to have a legitimate answer to that. Um, yes. the, 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 the Rebbe didn't, didn't have very good teeth. Um, in fact, the Rebbe didn't really have any teeth. One of the miracles that nobody seems to notice is that the Rebbe could speak. Um, because if you don't have teeth, you can't speak. Um, and the Rebbe didn't have teeth and didn't have dentures and could speak normally and make all the like, sounds that you need teeth for. The Rebbe in the, the 70s, I think, had one tooth on this side, and then by the late 70s, that was not no teeth. Wow. Yeah. So the Rebbe didn't have teeth. Um, uh, and the Rebbe just lost his teeth because the Rebbe didn't take care of his teeth for spiritual reasons, which is a topic for another time. But it was like an intentional thing that the Rebbe did not put anything in his mouth that wasn't actual food. So even like spoons and forks. Wow. Kind of, it's a spiritual thing. And the Rebbe lost his teeth. And, you know, lo- losing teeth is a painful thing. And at one point, the Rebbe had a very, very painful toothache, and there was someone who was close to the Rebbe's wife and said, you know, I can make an appointment with a good dentist. And uh, the Rebbe's wife, Rebbetson, said, he's not going to go. And, and he says, look, you know, it's okay if the Rebbe's afraid of the dentist. Many people are afraid of going to the dentist. <laughs> and she said, my husband is afraid of only one thing, and that is Rosh Hashanah. Because what is not a given on Rosh Hashanah? That Hashem cares whether we serve him. And if your whole life is about the service of God and Hashem doesn't necessarily care anymore, 
That's the scariest thing that can exist. But how does that even exist? How well, was that, we're gonna, we're gonna, I have a whole other class to develop this, right? Okay. Now, why is kingship, the, why is kingship? Like, why not say, does Hashem still want to be our father? Does Hashem still want to be, like, why, why use kingship? So here's the thing. Kingship affords a very special kind of relationship that you can't have another relationship. Remember we said that kingship, the strength of the connection is based on how distant, right? Not, not disconnected, not, but, but that sense of, of distance. We can be very close to God if God's going to pretend to be like us. Yeah, God can pretend to be a person, a loving friend, right? Romantic partner. God, God, can, God, God can play at being like us and then we can be very close to him, right? Wait, 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 wait. But if he's doing that, then what? Then he's being like us and are we really having a real strong connection to him as who he really is? Now, God could do the reverse and he could say, I expect you to be like some sort of infinite divine cosmic being like me. You see the problem there, right? How do you have a very strong connection where God stays God and we stay mortal creatures. Because there is no overlap between those two. Right? right? The, 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 the facts are, and this is sometimes something hard for people to accept, but there is no common ground between God and mortal human beings. Just the fact that Hashem allows it. Well, allowing is very interesting. You already say that. You, you ever heard this term rights? Rights? Yeah, like I have rights. I have my rights. I've got my rights. Yeah. Uh, what was the term before the rights? Right now, we have citizens used to be subjects. What was the term before rights? Privileges. What? Privileges. You know why? Because you are only entitled to do whatever the king. What word you use? Allows. Allows. But the point is, you don't have any rights. If the king allows you to be the, to have this, you can have it. The king takes it away. And I don't have to go, go. You're not entitled to anything. Um, but that actually shows a lack of commonality. That shows that he's the giver and you're, you're entirely dependent. I'll just use it like a simple like physical illustration of this. Fire and a pot of water. The fire is hot. The pot of water is hot. Oh, they have something in common. No, they don't. The fire is hot because it's fire. It's intrinsic. It does, the fire doesn't need to be heated. And the water, no matter how hot it gets, it's never truly hot. It's being heated. And the moment it's not away from it, it cools down. God, in all of his infinite transcendence and absoluteness and human beings and all their limitations, have objectively no common characteristics. Intimacy is actually impossible. Now, God can present himself in human form to us and we can have intimate encounters with God. But that's God lowering himself. And maybe... We could like have, maybe on some deep level we have an infinite soul and maybe if our soul leaves the mortal coil, well, then we can have some sort of intimate connection with God in that way. But if we're going to be mortal human beings and God is going to be God and we're going to be open and honest about that total lack of common ground, there's only one kind of relationship which allows for deep connection and each of us to be our authentic selves in that relationship. And that is a relationship okay. of a king and his subject. And so the question you have to ask yourself before you go to Rosh Hashanah, do I want to be intimate with God? But that means that God is pretending to be on my level when he isn't really. Or do I want to have a very open and honest relationship about who he is and who I am and face the fact that despite this infinite gap, we're deeply devoted to each other. 
But then that's going to make a very different kind of relationship. Now, last thing I'm going to say. There is a connection that Hashem has with each and every one of us, which is not that He is our King. This relationship is called the kind of connection between um, a, a, a father and a son. You could ask about the gender issue, but we're not going to do that right now. Um, and the point in this connection is that there is some sense in which God does not relate to us as, some, as, as an other. In a very similar way to which a father looks at their son and sees their son as just their continuation in the world. Um, and this is the idea of inheritance, the idea that you live on through your children. So there is a sense in which God looks at the core essence of every Jew and, 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 and says, I don't even need to have, even a relationship is not even the right word. I feel essentially one. But the thing is, that has nothing to do with us as human beings. That has to do with, like I said, there's infinite depth of our soul. But me as a human being who lives a mortal life, I can, you know, God, we, we, can, we, can, we can, God does reveal himself in ways that are very relatable. Like, you know, in ways that are relatable to us, more spiritually sensitive people like prophets. But none of those are God being out there in the open. I am God. You're a mortal human being. We have nothing in common. And yet... But the soul is not you, but the soul is not the mortal human being. And your soul, in order to get inside the mortal human being, has to do the same thing. It has to play act. Your soul plays at having intelligence and feelings in order to function in, in, in the world. The essence of the soul doesn't have those things either. Right? In other words, there's a, there's a connection we have with Hashem which is so absolute and so inherent, but it has no manifestation in, our, in, in, in the world in which we live. And there's, and there's a way that we can have a relationship with Hashem that's manifest in the world that involves a kind of compromising of Hashem, where Hashem, um, like, 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 it's like a parent playing with their child, or you can play with the child, and you, you get interested in what the child and the blocks and these things, but, but it's not really you. You're, you're not operating on your level. And then there's Hashem saying, I'm going to be God with all the absoluteness and all the transcendence and all of the... The, 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 the unknowability that that entails. And you're going to be a human being living a human life and yet we will be able to be connected in the deepest way. And the only model in human beings have of such a kind of relationship is a king and subject. So in other words, Hashem being our king is the only way as human beings we can have a relationship that is 100% authentic and deep. If we take it, bake it about you know, the, the, the essence of our souls, I mean, that's great. The essence of my soul and Hashem are all united as one, but that, that, that doesn't manifest in, in my human life. And what manifests in my human life, there's a, my soul compromises itself a little bit. God compromises himself. And, and, and there's a place for that, right? We're not, we're not negating that. But that's not what Rosh Hashanah is about. Um, and so, you know, start, as we said, in starting with the Chassidists, it's all about having an absolute connection to Hashem. The most important thing, arguably from a Hasidic perspective, is Rosh Hashanah. Because no Rosh Hashanah, the whole thing falls away. God might still have, in this one, authority, and he might still have power, but he doesn't have kingship. And that's what we're going to develop, that idea that God, his desire to be king goes away, and our desire to be subjects has to do with that, and our desire to be subjects has to do with bringing it back. And that's what Rosh Hashanah is about. And it's, it's, uh, it's something very, very positive in the fact that we're, we do end up reestablishing this bond. And it's also something very, very heavy 
because everything is on the line. All right? So we'll continue this discussion tomorrow. Wow. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.